Horizon Talk Radio. Online from the Highlands of Scotland, we are voices from around the world. The best talk on your number one talk radio station. Horizon Talk Radio. Yeah, very warm welcome. Um, Today's guest is Tim Fizakli. Um, He's a hypnotist um, at Britain's Fastest hypnotist.com is his website and tim's here today to discuss um hypnotism obviously um um i'll tease him with the first question but it's not so much teasing him um welcome to the show anyway tim it's more to do with my brain you know for why can't you do that like that and we'll explain so question actually the other day and when i emailed you um tim why can't you actually um hypnotize people live on air um because psychics do stuff and other people do stuff and i found it interesting because it was very real you know and it actually worked for me um not the hypnotist but the other stuff i guess you've got laws (laughs) yeah no it's all to do with the peculiar laws that surround hypnosis um which vary from country to country in some countries you can't even practice as a hypnotherapist um, yeah, it's just illegal. Um, in this country, fortunately, it's okay. We can do it. But there is the uh, the laws on where you can and cannot practice hypnosis. Uh, a bit, <laughs> they're sort of strange and, and arcane, and they go back a long way to, uh, I think it's the 1953 Hypnotism Act was the first one. But there's been various amendments to it since then. And so you can't do something like a hypnotic induction on a, on a live, bro- well, I don't think you can include it in a broadcast. Um, there's, uh, there's just rules about what you can and you can't do, and it's one of the things you're not allowed to do. So, um, yeah, I, w- I was just thinking if I needed your help, you know, and we'll go into um, the rapid deep hyp- hypnosis in a bit. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, I'm fed up with my problem and. I've only got one option. I can't visit you in a clinic where you could take care of me if, you know, there was a problem with what you did. Um, But, you know, I want to do it over the phone line. I mean, technically that's the same thing as being in front of an audience, isn't it? It's still over the phone line. Uh, no, it's not. It's about it. The like the way the way the law works, it's to do with it being broadcast to an audience. Um, So, uh, no, you can't. But there are there are big problems with doing hypnosis over the likes of phone or Skype anyway, because really, uh, the from a sort of uh, care of the client perspective, you, really you'd need to be in the same room as them because you want to make sure they're okay. Uh, things if you're doing things online, if you get a drop connection. Obviously, then you've got you've got no way of monitoring what's going on. You've got no way of speaking to somebody, and if they're in a deep state of hypnosis, what are you going to do? So it, um, yeah, I think there are some hypnotherapists who do do hypnosis online. Um, I'm not one of them, uh, but uh, and that's sort of the reason why it's because it's just not an ideal way to go about it. In case you get things like a drop connection or whatever. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, I can, I can just imagine that, you know, and then the person, because of the way they are or feeling, you can't get back to them and unhypnotize them. Uh, so that, 
Yeah, <laughs> that's why we have laws, obviously. Yeah, so I'll read a bit, bit of your bio out because I should have done that first. Um, Tim uses uh, rapid deep hypnosis and other fascinating tools, um, which we'll tell us about soon, to end addictions, cure trauma, fix relationship problems, and change lives. You can see reviews and video clips on his website, which again is Britain's fastest hypnosis.com. Um, He's been featured in the national press, radio, TV, and he'll it, it, probably tell us. Uh, uh, he actually was involved in Aria Grande concert um, with the therapy afterwards for the people um, of that. So, yeah, I've only just sort of read, read a, a brief, but tell us what is rapid then, um, the rapid deep hypnosis. What's the difference between the different techniques, I guess? Okay. Uh, well, the what I call rapid, I would say, is probably about 90 seconds. Um, anything under two minutes, I think, is rapid. Um, and that's to get the kind of state where you can elicit genuinely hypnotic phenomena. Um, and one of the things that I do, if, if anybody goes to britainsfastethypnotist.com and looks at the videos on there, what they'll notice is that they, typically with clients, when they come to see me, um, I'm doing certain things. Before I start any work, sort of therapeutic work, I'm checking to make sure I've actually got the hypnotic state and that, and that, that we're well-placed to do things that are actually genuinely useful. So I like to stick people's hands to their head, stick them to the chair, um, those sorts of things, which you cannot do unless you've got a genuine hypnotic state. Um, so, and so in terms of rapid, what I'm talking about is maybe 60, 90 seconds to get to that from nothing. Um, it, and that's a bit different from the way most other hypnotherapists go about it, because typically they will use sort of very slow, um, relaxational inductions for hypnosis, and they can last 20 minutes, half an hour before they get anywhere. So it, it's, you know, it's strikingly different. And um, one of the things that actually I find interesting about it is clients seem to prefer it. Um, the, they like to know that, oh, actually, this is hypnosis. This is not just relaxation. And it's one of the reasons that I like to do that for them. Yeah, it makes sense because if you wanted relaxation classes, you'd go somewhere that did them. <laughs> if you wanted hypnotherapy for a specific cause, you know, whether it be PTSD or um, other reasons, I think it's a bit like having a jab. You'd, you'd want the jab now and then, you know, because I, I just want to be fixed. I'm, I'm not here for the, I can relax when I get home. <laughs> you know, you want the fix, don't you, kind of thing. You want to try and get rid yeah, of the problem. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. And the the, the other thing, the, another reason why I like to work that way um, is because many people are not very good at relaxing. Uh, and you know, if, somebody's, if somebody comes in and they're really stressed out and feeling tense and they're anxious about everything, asking them to relax is not necessarily going to be the easiest thing in the world. Uh, you know, if they could relax easily, they wouldn't be coming to see you in the first place. So the, there's there's various different aspects to it, but um, 
there are you know, there are really good reasons for doing things quickly. Um, but like I say, what really surprised me was when I started working in that way, the clients actually seemed to prefer it. Yeah, and I'm going to be sceptical now because, you know, that, that's what it's all about. We're, we're discussing the work of a hypnotherapist. How does it actually work then? So you're going to, you know, I'm just thinking I'm coming to you now. I've got very bad um, problems because I had problems as a child in care. You know, I was abused different ways. I've got probably got post-traumatic stress in a bad way. And, you know, I've lived with this 40 years, um, maybe 50 years. Some people have lived with it longer. But do they become a lot better the first session or does it take several sessions or is it kind of no fixing them properly, but it, it manage, you manage to live with it after coming to you? Okay, well, there's a lot of questions there. Um, can you fix them properly is an interesting one. Um, probably the best way to think about that is if you were to get a piece of paper and you screwed it up into a ball, um, you'd wrinkle the paper up and you could smooth that paper out. But what you'd never do is be able to get rid of all the wrinkles. So, uh, and it's sort of similar. So you could, so yes, very often you can straighten things out. But what you can't do is get rid of the wrinkles. Yeah. And you wouldn't necessarily want to either, because if, if somebody has been through a sort of very traumatic past, um, what you wouldn't want to do is to erase all memory of that because that firstly that is their past and it belongs to them but secondly um if you undertake to remove things like memories then how on earth is that person going to protect themselves from the same thing happening again if somebody has recollections of the things that have happened to them at least they can go against so usually it's a case of um, changing somebody's, uh, changing the way somebody relates to reality. Um, are you quite happy to have a long answer? Because it, because I'm quite happy to give you a longish answer, and I'll make I'll, I'll do my best to make it interesting. Yeah, um, no, the longer answers uh, make people understand better, don't they? Right. Okay. Fair enough. Well, one of the things you asked me was like, you know, can it be done really quickly if somebody's had it for a long time? Um. The answer is yes, um, under certain circumstances and for certain reasons. It, it, I mean, you could ask most people what shape the earth is, and, and most people would say it's a ball. Uh, and then you could say, right, okay, well, let's suppose it's not a ball. Let's suppose it's shaped like an ice cream cone, like a 99 or something like that, and that all you ever see is the round end. You never see the pointed end because if, if – NASA or the other space agencies showed you that instantly all the funding is going to disappear because people would be like, well, you know, what are those clowns at NASA playing at? We know it's not that shape. But let's also suppose we could shoot you up into space and you could look down on the Earth and see the pointy end with your own eyes. The question is, even though you've got a lifetime of programming, which has taught you one thing, how long would it take for you to change your opinion about the shape of the Earth? And the reality is you could do that in an instant. 
So it doesn't really matter how long somebody's had something. The, the human brain is perfectly capable of unlearning things if they if if they're shown to be incorrect and it can it can unlearn anything um so if somebody's carrying around all sorts of problems those are things that they have learned as they've gone through life um or maybe they learned it from some traumatic experience or a sequence of traumatic experiences those things can be unlearned in exactly the same way that you can unlearn other things and so uh, what we're really dealing with is what I call the model of reality. Um, uh, because when people interact with the world and have feelings about themselves or about other people, what they're actually reacting to is not reality. It's reality as they perceive it, as they understand it. And everybody understands reality in a different way. That's why if you go on Twitter... You can you can get involved in any conversation and you'll find that people have very, very different opinions about it. And that's because they're all modeling reality in different ways. Um, so in order to correct problems for people, you're not changing anything about them. All you're doing is using hypnosis and other tools in order to change the way that person models reality. And if you can do that, then you can reshape their entire experience of life if that's what you want to do. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people would want their problems solved when they quickly rather than later. Yeah, well, actually, it's very often better to do it quickly because, if again, if you think about it, um, the things that affect you the most profoundly and the most deeply are typically not things that took a long time to happen. They're usually things that happened quickly. So in terms of what's the best way to go about solving things, it's typically best to do it quickly. Um, what would be a good example? Um, okay. Somebody could go in and out of London on the train every day. They're commuting to work. You know, they sit there reading the newspaper, all the rest of it. Then one day, the the, there's a train accident. It comes off the tracks or collides with another train. People can become traumatized in seconds. And the results of that would be very, very profound. So if the human brain can do something like that very, very quickly, in a, in a bad way, going from feeling relaxed and happy to traumatized and everything's upsetting me, all the rest of it, then it's firstly, it's obvious that it's perfectly capable of doing it in reverse because the same amount of rewiring is required. That's all. Um, and secondly, it's probably best to do it quickly because that seems to be the way the human mind works. Does that make sense? Because a lot of people with these traumas, the last thing they want to do, uh, it, it depends on the situation, you know, health trauma, problem with health might be different to somebody who's, got PTSD, seen a bomb, or, you know, they had the train crash, or they've been abused in in children's homes. They're different levels, I guess, but um, I'd certainly agree that it's, yeah, what my point, sorry, I've, I've gone the wrong way. My point I was trying to make, um, I think they wouldn't want to do this several times, because the worst thing is keep remembering what, 
why you're there, you know, why am I going to the, the council of the therapist hypnosis, you know, they don't want to remember that. They want to literally erase everything. And most people want to do it quickly. I mean, I know I would. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, it, it makes sense to do it quickly. Like I said, partly because of the way our own minds work. Um, but s secondly, it, it, it is there's just the logical way to go about it. If If people go from feeling fine to being traumatized quickly, and that's typically the way it happens, it makes no sense to put somebody in two years of therapy for that because it, it, if the, the the best way to solve things is to use is to exploit the same mechanisms that change people in the first place in order to change them back. So that that's basically my my sort of fundamental approach is how did this happen in the first place? What must have happened? Um, what sources of information, what streams of information were going into this person's mind in order for this change to happen to them in the first place, for them to end up in this state. Okay, if that's the case, then how do we do that in reverse? And that's, it's, it's very, very different from the sort of traditional way of going about solving things where, I mean, there was a, a fire in King's Cross Station Years ago, I, th I think it was King's Cross, and I, I was sat watching the television, and they were talking to people who'd, who'd had like two and three years of counselling after that. And I literally could not understand it, because if somebody is taking two or three years to solve a problem like that, then clearly they're going about it the wrong way. It just doesn't make sense, because it ignores the way people's minds actually work. Well, my, my negative response to that... Um would be that whoever's trying to solve these poor people's problems, they're just doing it for the money in that occasion because even these, well, I guess they're called rapid counsellors, rapid counsellors, a bit similar to what you do in hypnosis, even the counsellors, because um, I've been to one for a reason, and they actually say that we prefer to see you over the shorter period rather than the longer one because it doesn't, have an effect after so many weeks. I think it's six weeks. Uh-huh. And, of course, the funding yeah. is not always good after that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think if somebody has puts a, at least puts a limit on the amount of time that they're going to spend with somebody, I think that's a good thing. Um, my way of doing hypnosis is, uh, under normal yeah. circumstances, not during COVID, because things are having to be worked on slightly differently, but they... Uh, under normal circumstances, my approach to hypnosis is a single session for anything. That includes, I, for years I specialized in um, straightening out bulimia, nervosa, and anorexia. Most recently I've been doing lots of work on chronic, al chronic alcohol conditions because of a, a book that a lady wrote who saw me, um, which is on Amazon. And uh, again, those things are all undertaken in a single session. But there's a big difference between a single session for chronic alcoholism and a single session for a spider phobia. If it was a spider phobia, I'd expect to have that straightened out in maybe 60 minutes. But the, with chronic alcohol, I, I'm devoting most of an entire day. So even though it's a single session, um, it's, it's a single long intensive session for certain things and that's just it's just because for some things there is a lot of work to do uh, and you the the example that you gave of 
somebody who's had you know countless different traumas all sorts of problems their life's been a bit of a train wreck there's a there there can be a lot to straighten out if you're going to help a person who's been in that kind of situation and that's very different from somebody whose life's been fairly straightforward but who's experienced a single traumatic event and the two things are completely different so they they require they may require different approaches but also the amount of time that's required could be very different um one of the reasons why i i i work in that way is is goes back to when i was working on eating disorders um which initially because years ago I, I was working in a way which is very similar to the way other hypnotherapists worked and it was you know, i do maybe an hour and a half one week and an hour and a half the next um but when I started working on eating disorders, I, I began to attract people from further and further afield. And I had people flying in from Thailand and Egypt, which, if you're in the northeast of England, is really quite something for a hypnotherapist. Um, and it, there's no way under those circumstances that you can have them come back every week. So I started rolling everything up into one session. And what I discovered was it's actually better um, it, in terms of outcomes because if you do things and you break it into separate sessions then you've got this sort of one step forward two step backs types and types and or two steps forward one step back hopefully um where somebody will yeah manage to undo some of the progress that they've made between sessions if you've got somebody you know their bums on the seat in front of you and you've got them there for the entire day there's no opportunity for that to happen. So you, it, it's actually a much more efficient way to work. Um, it can be exhausting, um, but in terms of is it best in terms – if somebody's really in a mess, it's typically the best way to do it in my experience, which is how I ended up working in this way. Yeah, so just typically then, um, what does a session involve? I mean, you know, I'm just talking from layman's terms here. Yeah. I'm imagining then you sit me down somewhere or I lay down, whatever the case may be, and then you sort of put me into this state of half awake, half asleep, I, I call it, because I'm sure that you must know what's going on technically with your eyes, but maybe the rest of your mind is somewhere else. I'm just, this is from someone who doesn't know anything about this. So what actually happens and how do you go on to cure them is it what you say what you do yeah that kind of thing okay all right well um again this there's some in some ways it's quite complicated questions uh, but in other ways they're not right the, the, the typical way that i go about things is first when somebody um first arrives in the then i will give them a brief explanation of what hypnosis is, and how their own mind works. And typically, I'll relate that to the problem that they're coming to me because they want to solve it. Occasionally, I get to work on things where people are just looking to improve things, um, but normally, it's a problem that brings somebody to my door. Um, so I'll, I'll give them an explanation of how their own mind works and what suggestion is all about and, and, and how hypnosis changes things. And then, like I said, what I'll typically do is give them a demonstration. And the demonstration, for me, is a test to make sure that I've got, um, uh, that I can get the kind of state that I want, whereby they're uh, genuinely responsive to suggestion, 
And like I say, so typically for me, I, I, I like to lock people's eyes shut. I like to stick their hands to their head. I like to glue their feet to the floor, stick them and glue them to the chair. Sometimes I'll offer them money to get out of the chair. Um, so that what I'm doing there is testing for myself that, yes, this is hypnosis, and this person is somebody that I, I know I can work with using these methods. And secondly, for that, for that person, then they don't question whether it's hypnosis. But all I'm using is words. Um, I am actually sort of hands-on as a hypnotherapist. So I like, you know, I'm lifting people's arms and so forth. Um, but it's with words. And, and words are incredibly powerful. And, and it's only because words are powerful that you can have things like education systems. Um, in terms of what is hypnosis, um, you can think of it as a kind of relaxed concentration. So what I'm talking about is is describing reality to somebody not in a way that it is not rejected. And as long as it's accepted, then somebody models reality in that way and it becomes their experience of reality because they live inside the model. Um, and that's basically what I'm talking about. So if somebody has beliefs about uh, black holes, for example, um, they've got no experience of a black hole. But most people would say, well, it's a hole in space. And, you know, they've seen Brian Cox come on the television with his flashy graphics. And well, this is what a black hole does. And things get sucked into it and all the rest of it. Uh, and most people will quite happily believe that, even though they've never seen it, they're never going to see one. They have no way of validating it or checking it. Um, and even though if they go out into the garden and they dig a big hole in the garden, they can't put a hole inside the hole. Their experience tells them that they can't have a hole inside a hole. And yet when Brian Cox comes on the television and tells people that this is true, they will ad absolutely believe it. Now, some people would say, ah, but it's all about this bending and warping of space time. Well, when did when did you or I ever experience space and time being bent or warped? That's that has also been suggested to them. And as long as they believe it, they will believe what's being said. This is the whole basis of education. That the, the only reason schools work and colleges and and lecture theatres is because we are all suggestible. And so, what hypnosis does is is it's basically it's heightening that level of suggestibility that we all have in the first place. Um, using very specific methods in order to describe reality in a different way so that somebody can view reality in a different way, the world around them, whether it's scary, whether it's not scary, so that they can view themselves in a different way, um, usually a better way, um, that they might view some kind of substance in a different way than the way they were before. But it's been suggested to them to do that. Uh, and so it's a bit like it's a bit like education. Uh, and it, that's that's one of the things that really people find a bit peculiar about it because they expect hypnosis to be this strange, altered state where they won't remember anything and they'll be, it's like they've been, you know, knocked out fast asleep, all the rest of it. When somebody is in deep state of hypnosis, they are 100% aware of what's going on. They typically remember everything that was said um, and... You know, they can't be controlled. 
but what you do have is a doorway through which you can suggest different ways of looking at things or experiencing things in a way which the, their their mind can incorporate into their understanding of reality itself. But it's no different, really, from what typically happens um, in the real world. You know, you it, it, somebody might explain something to you on the television, or you may be sat watching a TED Talk on YouTube, and it gets you to think about things in a different way. That's basically the same thing. It's just, imagine that but very, very carefully designed to steer your mind in a particular direction, but also having taken steps to open up the, your and to heighten your level of suggestibility so that practically nothing gets rejected and it all goes in. Um, so you could argue that children are in a state of hypnosis when they're sitting in a classroom listening to a teacher describing what an atom is and how it works and all the rest of it. Um, and to an extent, that would be correct. Yes, they are. But it's not a deep state of hypnosis. It's like a light state of hypnosis. And so the, the difference really is in about heightening somebody's suggestibility. But it's it's about exploiting mechanisms that are already there, um, and 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 putting them to genuinely um, useful purposes. I was actually thinking at that point when you mentioned the children in the classroom. I remember if I'm interested in the subject um, when I was at school, I do remember feeling you know kind of. Yeah, that's good, you know, and to this very day I remember what was told to me because, you know, I remembered it, you know, I was interested in it. But then there uh -huh. came a, a time where if it was something you didn't like, that hypnosis state became sleep <laughs> because you were so bored with it. Uh, um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely yeah. right about that. And if you, if, if you think about this, suppose it was a lesson that you didn't like, right? And you're told at the start of the lesson that you're going to be tested when you get to the end. If you pay attention or, or if you fall asleep, those are the two choices. And you get a test at the end with which, which way you're going to get the best result on the test. You're going to get the best result if you stay awake and you listen and you focus and you concentrate. The one, the child who falls asleep is going to do very badly on the test. So, there's this idea that hypnosis is like sleep and and absolutely it's not because if somebody just falls asleep you're not going to get very far with them um so it's the best way to think of it is is, is as a as a kind of relaxed concentration and when you were talking about the lessons that you enjoyed you would have been feeling relaxed in those lessons but you would also have been concentrating and absorbing information so it's a, it's a very, very similar thing. And yeah, that you brought that up is actually very helpful because it's perhaps a good way for people to understand it. There's also another question. Um, this might be a bit of a, a teaser. So if if you can do that yourself, um, sorry, no, the other way around, if you can do it with you, hypnosis, why can't you actually do that yourself? Um, and then we'll, the next bit I was going to, bring in to complement that is um 
about the audio um, recordings that, you know, the PST C therapy. Oh, so, okay. you know, well, actually, yeah, we'll talk, we'll, we can talk about those. But um, why, well, why can't you do it yourself? Well, you can, but you need to go about it in the right way. And most people don't. And most books on self-hypnosis are just wrong. Um, and that's the only way to put it. Um, the thing is, the, the way hypnosis works is, I'll try and explain it as briefly as I can and as succinctly as I can. When somebody says something to you, doesn't matter what it is, typically what you'll do is you will, yeah, and you'll be doing it now as I talk to, talk, talk to you and explain this. Typically, when somebody explains something to you, you'll wrap your conscious mind around it and you'll pull it apart in order to see whether it makes sense. Now, if you decide that it does make sense, then your conscious mind allows that information to pass back to your subconscious mind so your subconscious mind can update the model of reality because you don't know how to do that consciously. If, however, your conscious mind says, no, nah, I'm not having that. I don't, I, th that just doesn't jive with me. You know, I, I, it doesn't square with my understanding of reality. Then you'll reject it. But, but that piece of information is still passed back to your subconscious mind because that's where your long-term memory is handled and so forth. But it, by now it's got a flag in it that says, don't do an update. Um, so at that point, nothing happens. Your beliefs don't change. So what you really need to do is to bypass the conscious mind because it's the conscious mind that really, it, it acts like a guardian, basically deciding what comes in and what, what doesn't. Um, and so when somebody suggests something to you, your conscious mind does this sort of filter, works this sort of filtering magic on things. But the only way you can filter information is based on the beliefs you've already got. So if you are, um, if you're, if somebody gives you a suggestion, and it's completely at odds with the beliefs you already have, then typically you'll reject it and nothing will change in the way you model reality. If, however, somebody gives you a suggestion and you don't reject it, then your subconscious mind will do what it's always done, which is to do an update to the model of reality. And then you start to see things differently. So hypnosis is about sidestepping that filter mechanism, which is called the critical faculty of the conscious mind. Um, and if you think about it, if you try to do self-hypnosis, then typically what you're doing is suggesting new ways of looking at things or feeling about things to yourself, but you've already decided you don't agree with them when you start. So typically what will happen is people will just filter those suggestions and they don't get anywhere. Um, the other thing that sometimes people will do is try a sort of relaxed version of self-hypnosis where they... Uh, you know, they try to relax, 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 and then give themselves suggestions. But at that point, their conscious mind isn't really capable of delivering the suggestions that they need uh, because it's become so relaxed. So the, the, there are finding, navigating a path through that to, to make self-hypnosis effective. It, it can be done, but it's not, it's not very straightforward. So there are ways to do it. Uh, but that's typically why self-hypnosis isn't very effective when it's gone about in certain ways because either somebody's relaxed their conscious mind to the point where they're not giving themselves suggestions or the kinds of suggestions that would be useful or secondly their conscious mind isn't relaxed but they're giving themselves suggestions they disagree with so they just filter them out and, and well, it's avoiding hmm. that scenario 
um, that is the challenge when it comes to self-hypnosis. There's one reason why it's, it's helpful to see somebody else, because if you work with somebody else, you know, if you go and see a hypnotherapist, um, they can, you know, they can decide what's going to be the most effective kind of suggestion for this person to receive. Uh, and they can also help somebody to reach a point where they are, where they become highly suggestible, where things can be suggested, which are at odds with the way that cur- that person currently models reality. And so that that's why a, a sort of two-person process is often more effective than somebody trying to hypnotize themselves. Hopefully that makes sense. I was going to say, we don't operate on ourselves really, do we? So it's probably better to have have these things done by the professional rather than yourself because I, I guess a hypnotherapist hypno, um, like yourself, is it, it's probably possible you could do it to yourself because you've had the expertise. But anybody else probably should go to yourself rather than trying it themselves. <laughs> Well, I don't. I mean, the, the, certainly, when hypnotherapists want help, very often they'll consult other hypnotherapists rather than trying to help themselves. Um, and I, I've worked with many hypnotherapists. Um, yeah, they they they've asked to come and see me, and I've I've worked on problems for them. And the 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 reason for that, I think, is basically that if somebody has a problem, they are expert in having that problem. They clearly aren't expert in solving it for themselves. Otherwise, they would have done it. Well, that's true. You don't go to the doctor, do you, for a fix to your problem? If you can get the chemist, (laughs) yeah, that's the thing. You can get the chemist in their problem, but they're experts in having a problem. Just briefly, tell us about the. the interactive audio recording then that you try to... Oh, right, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, well, um, the actually what... what yeah, it's probably best I tell you about the PTSD study um, yeah, because that's... You know, it hasn't been reported in the press in this country and, and quite why I... For the life of me, I don't understand it. <laughs> um, but I designed a way of correcting PTSD using an audio process. And um, some time ago, it w- this was picked up by, it ca- well, it came to the awareness of a neuroscience clinic in South America, of all places, um, which is a long way away from the northeast of England. Um, but it's probably the, the most respected um, neuroscience clinic in that part of the world. Um, and they've got an international reputation, but it's a combination. They're, they're, they're staffed by neuroscientists and psychiatrists. And they did a pilot study on this uh, treatment for PTSD that I designed. Um, and they, shortly before Christmas, they published the results of the pilot study. So this went into the scientific press. Um, the results, though, really, really surprised them because... Every single person on the study improved. So everybody, everybody on the study started out with a clinical diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, which typically is, is something which is long and slow to straighten out. And in this country, the two methods for doing that that the NHS 
uh, proposes and, and funds are counselling. Um, uh, there's oh, actually, there's, there's cognitive behavioural therapy and also something called EMDR. Um, but the in terms of sessions, it's a lot of sessions. What the clinic in Mexico were trialling was an audio um, way of doing this that I created, designed, um, and they did a half-hour intervention with each participant. Um, no therapist was required, and the half-hour intervention worked for every single participant in terms of reducing their PTSD. Uh, for most of them, it was just very significantly reduced. Um, for a third of the participants in the study, just that half hour, um, the result was sufficient to, that they no longer qualified for a PTSD um, uh, diagnosis. So that they were considered to be completely cured. Um, so the, the neuroscience clinic is, has been working on a much bigger study, which is apparently also awaiting publication. But I've been told that the results are basically the same. It's just that it's it was done even more rigorously and with much a much greater number of people. Um, but those tools are available. Am I allowed to say where those tools are available or not? Yeah, just keep advertising anything that helps people. That's yeah. why we're here. Um, th those tools are available through through a mind technologies company, which is based in the UK, called Orpheus Mind Technologies. And if anybody has suffered any, if anybody's listening and they've suffered any kind of trauma, Orpheus Mind Technology, Orpheus, as in the sort of Greek mythological um, uh, character, or Orpheus Mind Technologies have those available anybody can download them there are a couple of nhs trials already agreed because of the results that, that have been had and orpheus are also collaborating with the likes of imperial college um and a couple of other universities um because of the the qual just the quality of outcome that's been had so we you know we're surprised that it hasn't made the press um because that it is completely unheard of this, um, but that's what the scientists have have said, having tested it, and um, that's also my experience. Because you know, obviously, you we talked about me doing things rapidly in in my sessions. Uh, I designed these tools uh, because there are things that are tricky to do with hypnosis, and sometimes it's useful to have have tools to plug those gaps. So. Um, it, when people see me in person, it's a combination, you know, typically in a session is a combination of hypnosis and the tools that Orpheus, uh, have, have made available to the public. Um, it, and so that's one of the reasons that I'm able to get results quickly. So it, it, in many ways, the, I am really fortunate because not only have I got access to these amazing tools, um, uh, but also, uh, over the years, I've become very adept at hypnosis, and it's a that's a powerful combination. Um, but the PTSD thing is, you know, it, it's something I'm very, very proud of. But I would like to see it being picked up by the likes of the the military and so forth. And actually, at the end of COVID, there are going to be so many people suffering from po all sorts of different kinds of post traumatic stress. Exactly. Um, I kind of know a lot of 
I know a lot of war veteran societies, and I've had some big, well, not not in the last couple of years, um, but between me and the people I know, we probably know the biggest society of PTSD in this country. Um, so we, we need a show like this, you know, and, and maybe another one to kind of, you know, once the show's done, I'll put it out to them. And I tell you what I've noticed, though, you may be the creator of PSTC therapy, but there's 10 pages of Google now of people doing the same thing. Uh, well, no, not people doing the same thing. And I think that's really, that, that I think oh, is sorry. a really important, it's a really important distinction to make because there are things that may look or sound similar, um, but they definitely aren't. And the difference is that this has been scientifically validated completely independently. Uh, you know, the only, the only, in, in, um, involvement that i had in that study was providing the tools explaining how they should be used and then the neuroscientists set to work with them uh so it's it is completely fully independent so it's a pro it's a proper genuine third-party verification by scientists um so because anybody can make a claim uh and yeah it may be that there are other things that work well um, but that that I think is the is the difference. And like I said, you know the the NHS we have at least fortunately got some NHS trials agreed. Although COVID has got in the way with that a bit. But like I said, it, these kinds of things are going to be important because so many people will have been traumatized because of COVID in all sorts of different ways. There is no way that there would be sufficient number of therapists to deal with all, to deal with them all. So it's going to ha whatever solution is 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 eventually decided upon. It's going to have to be something that doesn't require a lot of therapist involvement because there just aren't that many therapists. But there are going to be huge numbers of people when we get when we come out of the the pandemic situation um, that qualify for these PTSD um, diagnoses. You know, people working in the emergency services. People working in the police, people working, in, you know, all, all over the place. Um, people are having to deal with things that they've never had to deal with before. And stress can be cumulative. Um, so, you know, the people are already talking about a mental health, you know, a mental health sort of disaster explosion because they can see it in the pipeline. And there are, you know, the NHS has got places where, that the the number of calls that they're getting is you know it's gone up like two and three hundred percent and i'm sure that the same is true of mind and various other places the various other um bodies that that help to that undertake to help people with mental health issues um yeah. once everything's over then it's really going to hit people um so at the moment we're probably at the eye in the storm um you'll you'll know sometimes if sometimes if something's going on you might run on adrenaline and it's not until after thing after things have sort of calmed down uh that it really hits people what's happened um so i think it is probable that we will see this mental health crisis really explode um and whatever can be done to help people um it's going to be it's going to be important because the, the, 
the NHS is going to have to start looking at other things because there just aren't the number of therapists to do it otherwise. Yeah, no, I must admit, my wife's had a, a need for PTSD um, treatment. They won't officially diagnose it because as was a childhood um, trauma when she was young. She was raped in uh-huh. a care home. And they, we, you know, we as the people that are married to such victims, we think, you know, you know, severe trauma, of course. But it's also, we think, PTSD because it's that rapid shock of, you know, a child experiencing what they experienced and then suddenly being thrown, you know, kind of thrown out to, to dry on their own. And we also know that talking to survivors of this really bad problem, the cognitive behavioural therapy isn't really... I mean, I'm not an expert, but they think it's not the right thing. And even if it was, the six, eight months um, minimum to wait, probably three years in certain areas of Scotland, I mean, we're lucky to have a good, you know, mental health services up here. But, you know, I think a tool like your own, um, from what I've read, seems so, so quicker, you know. You, you don't have to... Um, necessarily rely on you know therapists to be available all the time where you know your doctor could say look this is what you do and this is how you do it and wouldn't that be better than waiting months and years for seeing people yeah well absolutely i agree with you and i've got a colleague who works in the northwest of england who's actually working in schools using these tools and he what he's found is that that He's working with children for all sorts of things, and very often it's various different kinds of trauma. Um, it, and they've either got a huge waiting list to get in and see CAMS, which is the sort of children's um, sort of mental health body. Most children are directed towards CAMS if they've got any kind of mental health issue. But the, but CAMS has a has a, a long waiting list, and also things do tend to take a long time when people are working working with CAMS. Uh, but Peter has, um, like I say, he's working in a number of schools in the northwest of England. What he's found using these tools, and the schools have testified to it. So I, you know, I can I can talk about this, and if, if you you know if anybody wants the evidence, I'm, we can provide it. But the schools have said that. Um, you know, they're typically seeing results in in maybe a couple of sessions with children that have had sometimes two or three years of CAM involvement, CAM's involvement. So it is altogether different. Um, and one of the things that I think is probable in terms of the NHS trials is that um, they're likely to be working with, it's like this is likely to be offered to people while they are in a waiting list to see somebody in person because if they can be straightened out without having to wait to see somebody in person then that's obviously beneficial all around it's better for the it's better for the for the patients and it's also going to be better for the nhs uh because there is going to be this huge burden uh oh i mean it's large anyway and even before covid started um the, the mental health provision was lackluster at best um but you're absolutely right um i I agree with you about cbt i'm no fan of cbt that's why i'm not a cbc cbt therapist 
and the, the, the one of the one of the reasons because sometimes people ask me well why don't you why don't you rate cbt and the primary reason is because i've seen so many people who've had cbt and gotten nowhere but it doesn't surprise me because cbt is short for cognitive behavioral therapy and and anything that's cognitive is about what's going on in the conscious mind but if somebody's got bulimia nervosa and they're binging and purging all the time so by purging i mean throwing up usually sometimes it's taking laxatives and so forth if somebody's doing those kinds of things they know there's a problem they're already cognitive of it they just don't know how to solve it um so and if you're going to solve something like that you have to address it at the level of the subconscious um you know if it was subconscious um therapy then that would be different but it's not it's it's directed at the conscious mind but the conscious mind already knows there is a problem otherwise it wouldn't be seeking help and secondly the conscious mind doesn't know how to solve it if people consciously knew how to solve their problems they would be doing it from themselves so the i think the, the evidence base for cbt is actually very weak as i understand it um but those are the reasons why for me I'm not a fan because to me it seems obvious that it's never going to be particularly effective um, because it doesn't address things at the light, the right level of mind. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to ask you how you started all this. Um, and then, you know, over the next 10, 15 minutes, um, probably wrap it up, give websites out and how to contact you. But can we just pause for a, a two minute break? Um, that helps yeah, me course. with editing the show better. <laughs> it, I'll be back in two minutes. So a little jingle, a little song, and I'll be back. Okay. Imagine a world without Horizon Talk Radio. Exactly. and talk radio online from the highlands of scotland we are voices from around the world hello 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 yeah welcome back um it's andy it's horizon talk radio for a wednesday evening we're here today with um tim um tim for he's a britain's finest and fastest hit um so we're going to talk now 
hopefully, um, I had a question when I was thinking, when that music was on, I actually played the wrong, <laughs> the wrong track. I, w I was just thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if, if every single person that needed help um, could could get treatment straight away or at least within a month or something. And I think what the problem is with our society, and I can't knock health because health is brilliant when you need it badly, but when it comes to mental health and the mind, it seems to be a bit slow. Uh, you know, Tim, a lot, a lot of the trouble is you've got to do it our way, otherwise, you know, it don't exist. But, you know... I think we still live in that age of alternative therapy is not the right way to go. And most people know it's the right way to go because, I mean, a little simple example for myself, um, I was told I had pre-diabetes um, by the blood test from the NHS. And, oh, you know, you can't treat that yourself. You've got to have these tablets. Mm -hmm. Um no, I didn't. I just cut out the stuff that made it that way by Googling it. I mean, it's a no-brainer sometimes. But I really think the NHS needs to open up a bit more about alternative therapies. And I certainly, you know, if I could go to you once or twice, if it cost me a thousand, a million pounds, if I had the money, of course, um, it would be more worth it than going several times. I still say that. Yeah, I th I'm not going to. I absolutely agree with you about the NHS. I think in some ways it's a it is a it is a fantastic institution. And and obviously you said we were going to talk about how I got into hypnosis in the first place. Yeah. So one of the things I want to do is to applaud the NHS because for us it's been just amazing. Um, but the one of the but. In some ways, it's an absolutely astonishingly wonderful institution. The people that work within the NHS, in our experience, have been have been wonderful for the most part. But as an organisation, it's, it's like many big organisations. It can be slow to move and slow to adapt. I think, um, and so I think to an extent there is a the, the, yeah, there is an issue there when it comes to hypnotherapy i think hypnotherapists themselves are partly to blame um and there are definitely there is definitely a problem in the world of hypnotherapy if you know if you want to discuss that i'd be quite happy to um but yeah i absolutely agree with you yeah i just wanted to know a little bit more about um how you became a hypnotherapist uh, regarding the terminal illness in the family, yeah, it, well, it was yeah, it was completely by accident, uh, and it, it basically relates to my wife, who uh, was born with a congenital disease. So this is a genetic disorder, um, which which really really got bad. Um, about 20 years ago it's getting on for 20 years ago she reached a point where she was more or less unable to eat and drink and keep it down um and she was told that she need she was going to need a liver transplant as a consequence um the problem was uh, she wasn't considered fit enough to have one and she wasn't going to be fit enough to have one because she was really struggling to eat and drink 
So it was a it was a horrific chicken and egg situation. And there was no medical treatment available to us. Um, not without a transplant. A transplant was was uh, would was the only treatment. But unless you could get yourself eating and drinking and fit enough to have one, there was no way it was going to happen. Um, she um, she was born with something called polycystic liver and kidneys. And, and basically what happened was that she had a very, very stressful period of time at work. And for whatever reason, the cysts in her liver and kidneys started to grow at a, an incredible rate. And she ended up with a, a liver that was absolutely colossal. It's only supposed to be a few pounds, about three or four pounds. When it was eventually removed, it was it was more than three stone. So that and nearly all cysts. So the, and that was why she was struggling to eat and drink because it was pressing on. You know, it, it's, there was just nowhere for the food to go. So that was why I got interested in hypnosis. We we were completely out of options. They sent her home because there was nothing they could do. And you know, she was a relatively young woman at the time, um, early thirties. And we just didn't want her to die. So we started thinking, well, you, what, what can we do? You know, we certainly weren't just going to accept it. Um, and so we started looking around at possible ways to, to deal with it. And one of the things that we realized was that she'd been very stressed um, before all this really started to get bad. Um, so we thought, well, you know, would... Uh, would hypnosis help? I remembered reading a book as a child about hypnosis helping with certain physical conditions, and we got on the phone and started phoning around hypnotherapists. We tried to find somebody that that um, that firstly gave us a, a feeling of confidence, and secondly that uh, you know seemed to have some idea how to go about it. Because basically, what we needed was her eating and drinking enough to be able to get fit. Uh, so that she should, could should at some point have a transplant. Um, and we spoke to two kinds of people. Some hypnotherapists went, uh, well, yeah, bring her in. I'll quite happily have a go. But it was obvious that we wouldn't want to from the way they were talking. And others sounded as though they knew what they were, to, that, you know, they sounded skilled, but they would say, no, that's definitely not for me. So in, in the end, because um, I was working as a computer analyst and programmer at the time, I said, look, I'll make some recordings up. So it was off to the library because it was all pre-internet. We had the internet then, but not, you know, we mostly weren't using it, were we? So it was off to the library to get some books. Um, uh, I made some recordings, suggested the kinds of things that we, uh, that I thought should go into these recordings to get her eating and drinking and hopefully get her, help her get back on track. Started listening, and within about two weeks, she was eating and drinking more or less normally. Um, and um, so she was mixing up these pro these shakes in a big blender with like protein, you know, but like bodybuilder protein and bananas and this ghastly stuff called Forty Juice that the doctors were providing which is like a thick sugary syrup type stuff. And she eventually became, uh, she reached a point where she was considered fit enough to have a transplant. And then in, when was it? Uh, 2003, early 2003, she had the first of what turned out to be three transplants. Um, but that was how, that was what really got me interested in hypnosis. But she, but she has, 
um, actually been terminally ill three times um, and survived three times. So in, in that regard, she is, I think, very, very unusual. The closest she got was in 2007 when she was given three weeks to live. Um, but, you know, it's um, it's been quite a ride. But that was what really got me interested in hypnosis. So when I was uh, I was still working as a computer analyst, but I decided I was going to do a, a hypnosis training course. Um, and simply because we knew that it had been useful, and we thought, actually, this is this is worth studying. Um, and that's why I love teaching hypnosis. Um, and it's one of the things I've been doing through lockdown because that's you know that, that can do remotely. I don't have to worry about these issues of disconnections and so forth. But it was it was it was that that really got me interested. And then I got um, I got a bit fed up with work. And, um, there was a, a bit of a dispute over pay. Uh, it turned out I was right, and they ended up having to compensate a lot of staff because of it. But it um, uh, things didn't go well from an employer-employee relationship perspective. And in the end, when I went into work, just stuff it. I've had enough of this, and I became a hypnotherapist, and and that's how I ended up doing this. Well, I guess a, when it comes to your wife, you found a way of helping her relax. That actually made her cope with the problem and make her better naturally because that's what they, they they say um all over the internet you know forget about the hypnosis part of it but if you're stressed and you've got a, a major hurdle like a cancer diagnosis and, and you're stressed you're gonna well you're gonna struggle to um be as well i was gonna say die you know you're gonna struggle not to die but i mean it's going to affect you a lot, lot more. But if you're calmer, then you're going to be able to fight it better. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I had a very interesting conversation with a hypnotherapist that I know in America. I'm sure I wouldn't know how to get to them now. But I had a long conversation with him because he'd been I, he'd been diagnosed with bowel cancer. And it was something that he'd worked on with other people. He'd, he'd actually been found himself in court in America, charged with practicing medicine without a license because he'd, he'd worked with somebody who'd been diagnosed as terminally ill with cancer and they got better. And they credited him as a hypnotherapist for having straightened it out. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it was thrown out of court and everything was okay for him. But he, yeah, uh, he got cancer himself. And we had a long conversation about it because he'd said that he'd worked with quite a number of people who'd had cancer. Um, some got better and some didn't. Um, and, you know, we were debating what the possible reasons for that might be. But we were also talking about how he was going to go about approaching his. And one of the things that we both agreed on was that he should be watching a lot of comedy. And certainly when, certainly when my wife was, was first ill, one of the first things we did was we went to um, the HMD shop in the Metro Centre, which is just outside Newcastle, and we bought box set after box set of comedy. Um, uh, and we just watched a lot of comedy. And I think that is, that is perhaps one of the healthiest things that we can do is, well, is to, to laugh. Just a quick um, agreement on that one. I'm laughing because it's coincidental. My wife um, had her traumas when she was young. Um, 
And it was not until about 2010. So we got married in 92. 2010, you know, some, I don't know, 18 years, I think it was, because we've been married 30 now. She said, oh, by the way, you know, literally, by the way, did you know I was raped when I was young? Several times, you know, by different staff. No, because you haven't told me, you know, so it's kind of shock. And that's when she first started um, being very unwell mentally, uh, mental health. And sadly, she's still on the, the drugs today because I haven't found a way of getting rid of the, the problems and, and until now, probably, until what you've just said today. And um, if it wasn't, uh, sorry, I've lost my... Um, yeah, I think I've lost it a bit there myself. <laughs> Hang on. Yeah, so she um, so she took a long time to tell me. Um, yeah, well, it's it's a difficult yeah, thing for people. Yeah, it, to it's. <laughs> I've lost the, the train of thought now. Yeah, well, actually, if I if I could just take it off in a different direction, one of the things that I have been working on a lot um, it is chronic alcohol problems. And those kinds of things are very often in people's past. It, it, it has really, really surprised me just how many people seem to have suffered those kinds of things. Um, but also, you know, it, it's sometimes joked about, isn't it, that we spend the first 40 years trying to get over the first five. You know, the, the, it, it is true that the things that have happened to us continue to happen to us in our minds over and over and over again, unless something is done about it. Uh, because it colours your your perception of reality, uh, you, whether you somebody is conscious of that or not, um, it does. Um, so yeah, it, it it doesn't surprise me. But uh, like I said, comedy I think is is very oh, very yeah. important. You've just reminded me <laughs> when she first told us, and she had to report it to the police after eighteen years. The policeman, uh, policewoman, sorry, said, "Look." You've been self-harming, you know, we've got a long list of problems in the NHS to get you treated, you know, because she kept it hidden. So while it was hidden, it was a great, um, it was a great secret for her. But when she told me it wasn't, it was, it, it changed her personality, her mind. And, and so she, we, we was prescribed comedy films, <laughs> you know, go to Amazon, go to wherever, and laugh your socks off. It may not cure the problem, but it'll certainly help you deal with it. And it did. Yeah, yeah, it does. It, I think it is incredibly good for people. Um, so that's what we did. And, you know, we've still got boxes and boxes of comedy, and we're still watching it. Um, and I think it's one of the best things we ever did. So if the BBC is listening, <laughs> mm -hmm. your box set's definitely worth having. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I am the. I don't know where else to go with that, but uh, yeah. So that was our. That was how I got started, and um, it, it, like I said, the where I am now uh, was not something that I ever planned. It's just the way it turned out. You know, it's uh, it's just where I ended up. Uh, life has a habit, a peculiar habit. Did, did you say you was a computer programmer or you worked in that area of computers? Yeah, I was a 
computer. I was a computer analyst and programmer, and I never expected to be doing this kind of work. Well, all uh, you're doing is instead of Tim doing it with machines, you're doing it with people now. You're reprogramming them. <laughs> yeah, it's, to it's very similar. You're absolutely right. To an extent, you're absolutely right. But the, people is, need an update. Yeah, so I was going to say there's one important thing that I would like to make sure I get in. Because um, I don't know when we're going to finish, but it, but it, it was something that occurred to me as as you spoke earlier on. Um, and like I said, one of the one of the things that I've worked on a lot is chronic alcohol. And the the people I've worked with um, have really surprised me because if 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 years ago somebody had said you're going to end up doing that, and you'll really enjoy it. Um, yeah, I would not have believed them. But I've gotten to work with some very, very nice people. Um, but there is a huge... In ter- you were t- I think it was you were sort of talking about stigma and so forth. Mm. One of the things that I think is worth saying is that if somebody's got a problem like that, it is not a lifestyle choice. Uh, but very often it's treated as though it is, as though somehow this is something that somebody has chosen, and that if they and that if they are if they if they're struggling to stop drinking, that it's somehow you know them being weak or them not bringing enough determination to it, um, and it's just nonsense. Yeah, I have worked with enough um, addicts now to know that. Absolutely, nobody would choose this for themselves. And the, the other thing is that these are not the, the people that it happens to are no different from anybody else. They have simply been unlucky in terms of the things that life has thrown at them. And then because we're all wired up in very, very similar ways, they've responded in a certain way. In Typically, it's a coping strategy for other things. Um so, and it was just something that I thought I would really like to say, if possible, because, um, you know, if anybody is listening and there's a family member who's struggling with something like that, um, it's re- it can be very difficult to live with and it can be difficult to understand, but it definitely isn't a choice. And if they're struggling with it, it's not because they're weak, it's because they've been unfortunate. Yeah, d- addictions, um, I don't know, I've got a... When it comes to addictions, I think, I mean, it's only my point of view, I may not be right, but um, in fact, I, I want you to tell me off if I'm wrong, because I think addictions, um, if it's overeating, the bulimia thing, the um, the alcohol, and I put them things and other things like it into one category, you know, but... I don't know, when it comes to drugs, I'm a little bit more, are you sure, you know, you didn't go from one to the other to the other and then you ended up here and, I don't know, I mean, I just think, because there's a lot of good drug addicts that have um, recovered and they've never done it again, but I can understand also the other way around. When you're an alcoholic and you're not drunk for two years, 22 years, your desire for it, like a cream cake, is still there. May not be every day, but you look on telly, you go outside and you go to the pub and have a Coke and everyone else is having a whiskey or beer. It's 
yeah, it's it's very hard for addiction people. But I'm just thinking what destroys our world, especially in the UK world, is drugs. Isn't there a way um, that they could be treated uh, so then more normal? Or is it a society problem where, you know, the the NHS or the government just thinks that they're really bad because they shouldn't have done it and, you know, we'll push them aside, put them in jail? I don't know. It's Well, I think it's both. I think it's both and maybe all of those things. Definitely there is a societal problem, isn't there? Yeah, the the availability and and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, and but people don't willingly become addicted to things. You know, it's not something that somebody chooses. Um, if you know, somebody is taking drugs, um, especially certain types of drugs, there's a reason for it. And and in my experience of working with people who who are struggling with things like that, typically. What they're really trying to do is either to to handle difficult feelings, they're using it as an escape. Sometimes it can be an unwitting form of self-punishment as well. And I've seen those two things over and over and over again with, with people addicted to all sorts of different things. Um, but they but like I said, the the you're absolutely right. The the attitude, well, you know, these people are just naughty and they um you know, they've, they've sort of brought it upon themselves. It's not helpful. It's never going to solve anything. Um, uh, and I, I think it really is a case of their book, The Grace of God, Go I. Um, it's very, very easy from the outside to say, you know, this is something that they've brought on themselves. And to an extent, yes, it is. But at the same time, there is a reason for it. There's always a reason. And... Yeah, that's why. Yeah. I mean, obviously, type. I was just going to say just a simple example. Um, if there is a drug addict that's very high on drugs and he breaks into shops to get money to feed his habit, maybe all he really wants, you know, a bit like a hungry child, uh, go stealing for something to eat. All they really want is some help, <laughs> and they're not getting the help, so they're going to do better, worse things to, to get their satisfaction. So I do understand it in one way, but in another way, um, yeah, there's a lot of crime involved in drugs. I guess yeah. drugs are hurting others, whereas alcoholism are hurting a, a few people around you, but not that many. Um, but the drugs part of it is hurting a lot more. I know, that's just my point of view. Yeah, I think the I think the significant difference between alcohol and and drugs that alcohol is socially accepted. So and you know Christmas comes round and they're advertising all of the various different types of alcohol. It it is basically programmed into us that this is something which is good for us, relaxing, fun. It's about being in good company, all the rest of it. Uh, you know, it's all programming. Um, if alcohol were not such a, such a historically accepted part of our lives, it would be treated like other things. Um, it, but it's the fact that it's acceptable that one of that is one of the things that makes it so dangerous, because people don't see it coming, and they're addicted before they realise. Um, uh, and like I said, I think that's one of the re 
real dangers with alcohol. And it's one of the things that, that makes it a little bit different from other things. It's this, you know, it is socially acceptable. It's sort of expected. You know, if, you, if you're working in an office that if it's a works do, you're all going to go out and have a drink. Um, that's, you know, that doesn't happen with anything else. Um, but it creeps up on people. It, and they it's not until they've got a problem that they that they become aware of the dangers. Prior to that, they think, oh, it's absolutely fine. I can do this. Everything else is doing it. Not a problem. And then all of a sudden, they wake up and think, ah, I can't stop doing this. And and so it's it's a sort of it sneaks up on people. It's it is very very different from other things. Of course, that's the key. Telling yourself whatever the problem is that you have one, because until you tell yourself you've got a problem, believe it, no one can really help you. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody has to at first has to recognise that there is a problem. Um. So anyway, so yeah, so it was just something that I wanted to say because yeah. like I said it's often considered to be a lifestyle choice, and it absolutely isn't. I think we all got addictions. Um, some are controllable, some are not. <laughs> um, okay, then I was just curious. So last question then, and then we'll do your website, and then we'll wrap it up in the next few minutes. Okay. It's been a great show. I mean, we could have probably gone on all night. Um, I, I haven't even asked any of the main questions I was, I was going to ask. It's just that you ask one question, that leads to another, and... You know, I've only ticked off three questions so far. Anyway, um, no, no, don't we? We can do a follow-up show maybe in a, f a few weeks or something. Um, yeah, I'm interested goes. in this flying become um, program. You know, the nervous flying program. I'm just trying to work out. We became the opposite. We fl we flew properly. We've been all over the world. Um, well, Thailand anyway, and China, and we've been to Sri Lanka, and uh, been to America, Caribbean, so I suppose we've technically flied all over the world, been to Europe loads of times on planes, but we were happy flying, and then we became the nervous flyer after the bad turbulence or the bad landing, you know, it's, that that is so annoying, I mean, uh, I don't know, I think that's worse than being being afraid to start with. Because <laughs> if you're afraid and you get your confidence up, then I guess, I don't know. Yeah, sorry, I'm probably asking yeah, my own question there. Burst, <laughs> <laughs> at least you got all the flying in first. Would have been worse the other way around. Because you wouldn't have been all those places, maybe. Perhaps, perhaps it, a better way to look at it. It's how do you, um, I mean, I can understand addictions now with hypnotherapy and counselling and all that. I can understand everything we've spoken about, but I'm just trying to work out in my mind. If somebody's afraid of something, how do you cure them? Right, okay. Because it's only until um, they do it, they're going to get the confidence. Well, yeah, I was going to say, flying's a bit of an interesting one, and that's why there's a separate program. Um, and Flying Become actually used to be uh, partnered with Thomas Cook, um, until Thomas Cook, uh, you know, the, the, the hit all the financial problems. 
Flying Pacan was partnered with Thomas Cook, and I think it probably will be again because the I think Thomas Cook are gonna uh, have they become I think they're they're back in action but online or something. Yeah, they're an online travel uh, agent. Maybe you should partner with Fly B because they're in the north. Uh, yeah, maybe I should. Um, but it's it's partnered with Gatwick and Manchester Airport and various other places. But the 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 thing with flying is that it's not just one fear. Um, you know, you can have something like a spider phobia, and it's a it's a fear of spiders. Or you know, if, if somebody's got a fear of needles, it's a needle phobia. Flying is very different. Um, flying can be anxiety about turbulence about it could be the takeoffs it could be the landings it could be being in an enclosed space it might be you know not being in control um there's all sorts of possible fears that can be attached to flying and and that's one of the reasons why it's so the fear of flying is is so common i think it affects about 30 or 40 percent of the population it's a huge number of people um and so that's that means that in terms of having an effective system for dealing with it, it needs to be capable of addressing it. But basically, you know, how do you get rid of a fear? Well, a fear is basically, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an emotion that's been attached to something. Uh, and that's typically what we do with all sorts of things. So it might be the, the, there may be somebody that you don't like every time you see them, you feel this like that, you know, you've attached this feeling to a person or it might be there's a food that you really don't like. And if you see it, it makes you feel queasy or whatever. Um, so one of the things that the subconscious mind is doing in the background is attaching feelings to things. Typically, it's just making fairly straightforward connections. They're connecting one thing to another. Um, and so when you were talking about the turbulence, initially you had flying and relaxation connected in your subconscious mind. So that's the way you, the, the model was wired up. You hit the turbulence, and then all of a sudden flying becomes connected to turbulence, and, you know, this is not a nice feeling. And that's the way. Uh, so, that, so now there's a new connection. And when you think about flying, that's what that's what your subconscious automatically connects to severe turbulence, or it might be a really bad landing, or or whatever. And years ago, we came into Gatwick, um, and it was very, very windy. And just before we hit the tarmac, there was a huge gust of wind, and it was the the plane was tipped more or less on its side. I mean, the the wind must have just about touched the tarmac. And there were people screaming on the aeroplane. And some of those people would have got off with a fear of flying as a consequence. And that sort of illustrates what I was talking about. You know, typically mm. things that change are the things that happen quite quickly. Um, so essentially, the way to solve something like that is to, is to basically press a rewind button in the brain. And so the tools that I created, um, which Orpheus made available... Uh, they, you know, they're designed to to press that rewind button. But if, but if anybody does go anywhere, it, they will seem strange. You know, and people sometimes listen to them and think this is really, really odd. This could never work. Um, but the reason it seems odd and the reason it seems strange, these tools, if anybody uses them, is because it's not designed to to. It's not designed for conscious communication. It's designed to communicate information 
to the subconscious mind because that's where you've modeled that. If you wanted to change your anxiety about flying, consciously you don't know how to do that. But your subconscious mind knows how to do it. That ha- you know, it, it took you from feeling relaxed about it to feeling anxious about it effortlessly. It, well, I mean, what we kind of then did, um, it was only in the UK, um, Scotland to England, England to Northern Ireland and so on. So it was only in the UK we had these bad turbulences. And then we decided that in our own mind anyway, every time we go long haul, we don't get anything like that. So at the moment we've retrained our brain that the further you go, the better it will be or no chance. And also don't fly in the winter in Europe. Um, because last November, we took off from Edinburgh in 2020. And a bit like your landing when it banked on its side, it banked on its side on takeoff. It straightened off and then it banked on its right-hand side. Now, we haven't been on a plane for takeoff since. Well, we on the way back we did and it was all right. But, you know, psychologically, we're, we're still thinking, is that going to happen next time? Um, but I, I doubt if it will. What well, you have to do, really I think, real. is train your mind into the good times rather than the bad times. Yeah. And so what you've done there is you've said, right, okay, so if I look at it in this way, then we're going to be okay and we can fly. Even if it's a bit more limited than, you know, flying any time of the year. It's a bit like hypnotherapy. So what you've done is you've said, right, okay, what suggestions can we give ourselves in order to work a way around this problem or to change the way we feel about it? So you've basically done something which is very similar, um, but you saved yourself the money of going to see a hypnotherapist, and well done you. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, shout out your website and – and I want to thank you very much. It's been very interesting. And it's not a subject I thought I'd have fun with, but I've absolutely had fun. And I hope everybody listening will, you know, call you, um, email you, or go to your website and, and get some inspiration. Well, in the COVID, that's really, I really appreciate that. And I've enjoyed myself as well. And I really appreciate being invited on. Um, probably the most useful web address is orpheusmindtechnologies.com because the the tools that I was talking about there that neuroscientists looked at, they're available there and there's tools for all sorts of different things and Fly and Be Calm is available through there as well. Um, the My personal therapy website is britainsfastesthypnotist.com um, but like I said at the moment, um, I'm, what I'm, I'm working in different ways um, because realistically, it's not a good idea to use hypnosis over Skype and so forth. Um, so I am working with people in order to solve serious problems, but I'm doing it in a in a slower way. Once, once we get past COVID, things will be a bit different. Um, but even if somebody doesn't want to come and see me, because um, as hypnotherapists go, I am quite expensive. There might be, there is something on that website that is probably worth listening to. And that's right at the top of my homepage. I've got a free recording that anybody can play. You just, you know, you just literally click play. It's about 15 or 20 minutes and it tells you how to assess a hypnotherapist in order to see whether they are likely to be worth seeing or whether they're ones to avoid. 
So I've basically listed the the sort of red flags, the things to watch out for, because uh, and it's worth knowing because hypnotherapy is it's a, a profession where um, there is no sort of uni uni uh, uniform standard uh, either in training or in qualifications, and some people are much better at it than others, and there are some. You know, there are some people involved in hypnotherapy that absolutely shouldn't be. Um, you know, it could be through lack of training or for all sorts of other things. But if you, if, if somebody wants to see a local hypnotherapist, who's probably going to be the best way. Um, that free audio tells you what to watch out for. It, it, it's like, you know, if they're doing this, then you might want to consider somebody else. If I was listening to that now... I'd say, well, that's proof to me that he's giving me the option to go somewhere else if I need to. He's warning me of the problems, but, you know, why am I wasting my time? I'll just go to him. He's expensive, but I'll go there. Because <laughs> you're, you're helping them by giving them a video of choice. Yeah, well, the thing is, I think it's always best to be straight with people. Um, you know, that it's important to treat people the way you would want to be treated yourself. And and to be honest, I prefer if somebody goes elsewhere um, because you know, I get a lot of email anyway. Um, and at the moment, because of COVID, things that it's it, it, trying to solve problems under these circumstances with hypnosis over Skype would be a bit like doing trying to do it with one hand tied behind my back. So I'm working with people in different ways. But there are hypnotherapists who still got offices open who. Um, and certainly will do when all the restrictions are lifted. They were very, very good. You know, I'm not the only decent hypnotherapist in in the UK by any means. There are some brilliant ones. Um, and if people follow that advice, they'll, they'll, they should be able to find somebody who's really good, who's you know not far away from the doorstep. Okay, it's been brilliant talking to you, Tim. I'll send you a copy of the show, and if you want to put that other website. Um, in the Skype, so I can add it to the show the for the tools, because I haven't got that okay, one. That that would be interesting for them. Okay, I'll be happy to oh, do that. Oh, and you take care. Have a good evening. Yeah, you too. It's Cheers. been a speaking to you. And okay, you. Bye. Horizon Thanks. Talk Radio. Online from the Highlands of Scotland, we are voices from around the world. Hello. 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 